You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. everyone and welcome. Welcome to the Unitarian Church which has been going here in South Australia since 1854. I particularly note that we meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people and have a few notices of the week. Uh, Just to let you know that moving meditation has resumed on Mondays at 2pm here in the church. And next Sunday, for those on the Committee of Management, there'll be a meeting before the church service, 9 o'clock, and a Vision Committee meeting afterwards for those on the Vision Committee. I just let people know that uh, contributions can be made out in the foyer on the way out. If you wish, that would help us out. I like the flame on this chalice. For tens of thousands of years, Aboriginal people sat around campfires telling stories. They're dreaming. Stories which told them about how to understand this creation. Stories which gave them practical information about where to find water, where to find caves, where to find food. And also stories to tell them how to live the right way. We gather around this flame and tell our stories about this creation. And we hope our stories also tell us to live the right way. Now we come to a time of sharing some joys and concerns with these candles we light. And I'll light the first candle with a concern about the clash that has occurred in this great southern land which has left so many people feeling lost and dispossessed. I'd invite anyone else to come up, share any joys and concerns. Well, if there are no others, I'll light a final candle for those joys and concerns which we hold in our hearts, which perhaps we're not uh, up to expressing right now. Please join me in a moment of contemplation. The fact is that around us, among the people we know and in the broader community, there are many who are suffering for many different reasons. Health reasons are sometimes more obvious sometimes poverty, sometimes lack of opportunity, 
affect people's lives and limit their happiness. We do what we can and may we be inspired every day to serve others, act with kindness, graciousness and gentleness as we come across people who are suffering. So may it be. Now I'll invite John to come up and offer a reading. This is a quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, former Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town, uh, who lived from 1931 to 2021. Forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones are not about pretending that things are other than they are. It is not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It is a risky undertaking but in the end it is worthwhile because in the end only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can bring only superficial healing. Thanks, John. And now could I ask you to open up your green hymn books, hymn 204, we're going to sing but we're just going to sing the first three verses. We shall overcome, we'll walk hand in hand, we shall live in peace. some reflections today on the voice. Well, the film was called The Castle, one of the best Australian movies ever made. And the Kerrigan family are faced with compulsory acquisition of their much-beloved home next to Melbourne Airport. After losing round one in court, the father, Daryl, played by Michael Caton, is feeling pretty low as he packs up his most prized mementos from the pool room. <laughs> this is how he expresses himself. I'm really starting to understand how the Aborigines feel. This house is like their land. It holds their memories. The land is their story. It's everything. You can't just pick it up and plonk it down somewhere else. This country's got to stop stealing other people's land. Well, Daryl Kerrigan stood up for his family and his rights. 
He was, of course, a fictional hero, but today I want to tell you about a real-life Australian hero, Eddie Mabo, Eddie Koiki Mabo. Eddie Mabo was born in 1936 into one of the leading families on Murray Island, which is about 200 kilometres north of Cape York. Named Murr in the native language, it was renamed Murray Island in 1791 by a British Navy captain. At 19, the Murray Island court found Mabo guilty of drinking alcohol contrary to local regulations. His punishment was exile. He worked on boats and then cutting sugarcane and then on the railways. He married and settled in Townsville where he became involved in the Railways Trade Union and Aboriginal advocacy organisations. At the age of 31, he got a job as a gardener at the James Cook University, where he would often sit in on seminars and go to the library. At lunchtime, he would read up on what anthropologists were saying about his people in the Torres Strait Islands. He was shocked to learn that the island of Murr was not owned by his people, as he had assumed. In 1981, when Mabo was 45, there was a land rights conference held at James Cook University. By then, Mabo was respected for his Aboriginal rights advocacy. Mabo spoke at the conference about the traditional activities, sense of ownership and system of inheritance of Murr Islanders and how missionaries and colonial administration had eroded these traditions. A lawyer present at the conference thought that Murray Island could be a test case for Aboriginal land rights. In 1982, Mabo and others with lawyers initiated a claim in the High Court. After many twists and turns, including a law passed by the Queensland Government which attempted to deliberately extinguish any Torres Strait Islander land rights, the High Court handed down its final decision in June 1992. Tragically, at the age of 56, Mabo passed away just five months before the High Court decision about which he was so confident. But his efforts were not in vain. The High Court of Australia confirmed that Aboriginal people had what the court called native title rights. The court confirmed that this continent and surrounding islands were occupied by the Europeans that came here and claimed it for the King of England. It was, in effect, a conquest. There were some traditional activities still being carried on, however, despite a century or two of European occupation. The court found that Aboriginal people had a right to continue those customary activities, whether they be related to food, gathering or ceremony. These rights did not entail ownership of the land, but they were rights to continue those traditional activities. After Eddie Mabo's grave in Townsville was desecrated with racist graffiti, his body was relocated to Murray Island where his people performed a traditional ceremony recognising the passing of a chief. I'll just go to this picture, a fairly often shown picture of uh, Captain Cook planting the flag. And it was a tradition in the 18th century. It was almost a protocol among European nations. If they planted a flag and it wasn't challenged, they could claim the land in the right of their king or queen. And then they would send a little diplomatic note to the other European members of the club, so to speak, saying, oh, we've got that uh, 
Terra Australis, that southern land, we, we own that now. Of course, at the time, it wasn't the, the Latin terra nullius, an empty land. It wasn't empty, and now it's well established that there were Aboriginal tribes, or if uh, you prefer, nations, all over the country and the surrounding islands. Apart from the court decision, there had to be a practical interpretation of how it would be used. So to define how native title rights would sit alongside land ownership in the European sense and the various fishing and mining rights for which our law allows, the Federal Parliament enacted native title legislation in 1993. Apart from native title rights, Aboriginal people in the Commonwealth of Australia have the same legal rights and obligations as everyone else. That doesn't mean they have the same levels of health, wealth or even respect as everyone else, but we are all under the same law as subjects of the Crown. As to the background of the native title legislation, I can't do better than quote extracts from Paul Keating's speech made in Redfern in December 1992 to launch the United Nations Year of the World's Indigenous People. So this was after the Marvo High Court decision, but before the legislation arrived in the National Parliament. Paul Keating said, In truth, we cannot confidently say that we have succeeded as we would like to have succeeded if we have not managed to extend opportunity and care, dignity and hope to the Indigenous people of Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This is a fundamental test of our social goals and our national will, our ability to say to ourselves and the rest of the world that Australia is a first-rate social democracy, that we are what we should be, a truly the land of the fair go and the better chance. There is no more basic test of how seriously we mean these things. It is a test of our self-knowledge, of how well we know the land we live in, how well we know our history, how well we recognise the fact that, complex as our contemporary identity is, it cannot be separated from Aboriginal Australia. We non-Aboriginal Australians should perhaps remind ourselves that Australia once reached out for us. Didn't Australia provide opportunity and care for the dispossessed Irish, the poor of Britain, the refugees from war and famine and persecution in the countries of Europe and Asia? Isn't it reasonable to say that if we can build a prosperous and remarkably harmonious multicultural society in Australia, surely we can find just solutions to the problems which beset the first Australians, the people to whom the most injustice has been done? And as I say, the starting point might be to recognise that the problem starts with us non-Aboriginal Australians. It begins, I think, with that act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases, the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practised discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance and our prejudice and our failure to imagine these things being done to us. With some noble exceptions, we failed to make the most basic human response and enter into their hearts and minds. We failed to ask, how would I feel if this were done to me? Down the years, there has been no shortage of guilt, but it has not produced the responses we need. Guilt is not a very constructive emotion. I think what we need to do is open our hearts a bit, all of us, Perhaps when we recognise 
what we have in common, we will see the things which must be done, the practical things. Could I please ask you to say with me, if you wish, what's up on the screen, taken directly from a couple of the principles of Unitarianism. Let's say it together. We believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. We seek justice, equity and compassion in human relations. So now I bring us up to the current debates. For a long time there has been agitation among Aboriginal advocates for some kind of formal recognition of their traditional connection with their lands and the terrible loss they suffered as a result of European occupation. So then we come to a gathering of Aboriginal leaders from all over Australia at the iconic centre of Australia at Uluru in 2017. After many days of deliberation, this is the statement that they produced. It's important for every Australian to hear it. It will take a few minutes, but I'll read it out and then offer some comments. We, gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? that peoples possessed a land for 60,000 years and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years. With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them, and our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. 
Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Now, you may have gathered that there are, there are two requests made of the Australian people in that statement. There is the request for a truth-telling commission to establish what Aboriginal people have lost as a result of occupation, possibly to arrive at a treaty uniting all Australians with mutual respect. They call it a Makarata Commission, using an Aboriginal word meaning reconciliation after a struggle. The language of sovereignty is challenging because the concept of an alternative sovereignty or continuing ownership of the land running parallel to our legal system is inconsistent with long-established Australian law, including the Marvo decision. It is distasteful to consider that the colonisers of this continent took away the land and livelihood of the original inhabitants permanently, but that is now a historical fact throughout most of this land. This aspect of the Uluru Statement amounts to an unfinished conversation. The other request in the Uluru Statement is for recognition of Aboriginal people in the Australian Constitution and a guaranteed voice to Parliament. The general proposition is that there should be something like a committee which is consulted in relation to all legislation which would have an impact on Aboriginal people, which one would think would be most legislation. It is not suggested that this committee could determine or even amend legislation in any way. It is a proposal for a democratically elected group of Aboriginal leaders to be consulted and heard in relation to our national debates. In shorthand, this consultative mechanism has been called the voice to Parliament, and the Federal Government is determined to hold a referendum this year on whether it should be brought about. I'm not here to tell you how to vote in relation to this or any other issue, but it is appropriate that we recognise this is a significant social question of the day. As people committed to the democratic process, it is our responsibility, I would suggest, to be informed so that we can ask appropriate questions if we wish and perhaps even answer some questions in our conversations with others. If some of you want to know more or want to get involved in the referendum campaign, let me know before you leave today. Perhaps the church would like to get involved in this further in some way. At the very least, as you start to hear more in the media about this topic, I hope today has given you a useful framework for your contemplation of the matter. Perhaps with these big issues, the first thing we can do as people committed to democracy in our own country, as well as the world, is to inform ourselves. And today has been a little bit about that. I think all of us are intelligent people who know we have to be very careful about what we receive from the mainstream media. We have to sometimes read between the lines to see what the agenda of the journalist or the newspaper or the TV station is. 
But let's try and inform ourselves and move forward with goodwill on this issue. We hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.